This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. America's healthcare system is unraveling. Every day, millions of hardworking people struggle to find affordable medical treatment for themselves and their families, unable to pay for prescription drugs and regular checkups, let alone hospital visits. Some of these people end up losing money. Others end up losing something even more valuable, their health or their lives. With us today is Jonathan Cohn, author of Sick, the Untold Story of America's Healthcare Crisis and the People Who Pay the Price. Cohn is a senior editor at the New Republic, a contributing editor at the American Prospect, and a senior fellow at the think tank Demos. Jonathan Cohn, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks very much for coming on. How are you today? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Do yeah. you have any health problems at all? Or you... <laughs> no, uh, yeah, a little hay fever, allergy season stuff, but nothing too bad. I'm pretty fortunate in that way. Yeah. Now, for... Uh, I think back by the Great Depression time, there were a lot of countries in the world that were uh, already implementing some sort of universal health care. But the United States has been just very resistant to this kind of uh, coverage. Can you give us some idea why that's true? Sure. Well, yeah, you, you pegged the, the birth of American health insurance exactly in the right place. You have to go back to the Great Depression. Um, it's the first time in American history large numbers of people find themselves in a situation where they cannot afford to pay for their medical care. And we realize we need some kind of insurance arrangement because basically the, the bills become so much that no one person, except for the very wealthy, can pay out of pocket for these expenses. We need to get groups of people together and so that people can pay into one common fund and whoever ends up being sick and then get there's enough money there to pay that person's bills. Well, we uh, faced a decision. Do we want to do create a, a, a a one common universal system for everybody, and this is basically what every other developed country in the world eventually decides to do. We say no. Uh, we, for a number of reasons, one of which is historically, you know, we're in the United States, we've always been skeptical of the government. We 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 have, we, we like the private sector more. Uh, also, um, there's a, a lot of resistance to creating a universal system in this country uh, from organized interest groups over the years. You know, Franklin Roosevelt thought about adding national health insurance to the New Deal. Uh, he worried the opposition of state medical societies would be so intense he would lose the fight not only over health care but also over the Social Security Act. So we ended up not creating universal health care, and the private sector basically solved the problem on its own or attempted to, and that's how we ended up where we are today with this system that relies on private health insurance, primarily on insurance that people theoretically are supposed to get through their jobs. We have a system now that in uh, the limited experience that I've, ha- I've had with it in the last few years, it's God help you if you get sick, isn't it? I mean, well, it, it really it was, can be. And, if, um, you're, if you can't afford... You can't afford to get sick, I guess, is the way I'm trying to trying to phrase this. Well, yes, no, I think that's right. I mean, if you don't have health insurance, you, you, you will be socked with bills that will, will blow away any savings you have. And even if you do have health insurance, you could very well find yourself in a situation uh, where your insurance does not cover uh, all of your bills or even any of your bills, depending on what kind of insurance you have and what kind of treatments you need. And uh, what was amazing to me in working on this book, talking to people, you know, you can see this statistically. I mean, there's all sorts of statistics out there 
which suggests that when people uh, cannot afford their medical care, either they don't get the medical care they need, they, they in effect they ration their own health care services, or they go into debt and they have financial problems from it. Sometimes both of these things happen. But to, to really understand, I mean, just talking to some of these people, it was stunning to me how quickly people's lives could just unravel. And, you know, these, these could be people with good middle-class jobs and making a nice living. And, you know, they get hit with one of these medical episodes. Their insurance doesn't pay for it or they don't have insurance for some reason. And the next thing you know, they're, they're, they're filing for bankruptcy. They're losing homes. Uh, they're going without medical care and paying a price for that. And it's, it's just really, um, it's, it's really quite alarming. There are some staggering statistics that are coming out about uh, the bankruptcy and the causes of bankruptcy. And can you... Sure, yeah. No, a lot of those uh, statistics have, uh, there's a woman at Harvard Law School named Elizabeth Warren who's really been doing a lot of research on this, um, and uh, a couple of other researchers as well. Um, exactly what role medical debt plays in bankruptcies is a bit of a subject of some controversy at this point. Um, so, but you, what you can say without, uh, without any doubt at all is that medical debt is a leading cause of bankruptcy, and it's a big contributor, and it makes sense, too. I mean, again, if you think about it, um, if you don't have health insurance, you can run up a ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollar hospital bill like that a day or two. It does not take very long. There just aren't a lot of people who are equipped with the kind of money to pay for that out of pocket. You know, particularly if it then goes beyond a day or two and you're talking a week in the hospital, you know, you could be looking at a six-figure hospital bill, and there's just not a lot of people who are equipped to pay that. Yeah. We're speaking with Jonathan Cohn. The book is Sick. The Untold Story of America's Healthcare Crisis. Um, you said earlier that uh, that employers or the private sector uh, took over, or at least uh, made up for the lack of universal health care uh, after Roosevelt failed to implement it. Um, when did that system begin to break down, and why did it break down? Well, it, I, I think you really trace the breakdown to the late 1960s, early 1970s, and 70s, and early 80s. Uh, what, what happened was, you know, employer-provided health insurance, and by that I mean, you know, the idea that basically you will get your, if you're a working-age person, you're supposed to get your insurance from your job. Um, and that's the first assumption. What was, what was the rationale behind that? Or, I mean, is that because well, I mean, there was the some... Well, I mean, there wasn't, I don't know if it was so much of a rationale as it just sort of happened that way. Okay. You know, insurance, as we were talking about before, only works if you get groups of people. Mm-hmm. You, you, need, you, need, you need a group of people, because you've got to have this large number. Everyone has, you need a lot of healthy people to offset the cost of the sick people. Mm-hmm. Um, where are you going to find groups in society? Well, you know, the workplace is, is one place you can find it. And uh, this actually all goes back to uh, Dallas, Texas. The first modern hospital insurance plan began when a, uh, a hospital there decided to approach the local school teachers and ask them if they wanted to, to, to buy what was, in effect, the first ever modern ho- hospital insurance policy in this country. And basically after that, that, the hospital did it because, you know, when people can't pay their bills, the hospitals need help because, of course, no one's paying their bills. They, you know, eventually they need the money, too. And so other hospitals copied this. This became the Blue Cross model, and it's the model today that we still use. Um, over the years, there was a tax break given for employer-sponsored health insurance that made it even more appealing. Uh, during World War II, it was exempted from wage and price control, so that made it even more appealing. But basically, once we kind of set down that path, it became a very convenient way to give health insurance. And, you know, and it was good for employers for a long time because it wasn't very expensive. It's a nice way to buy worker loyalty. 
And, um, you know, everybody was happy with this arrangement. And they kind of, and they knew that if they didn't have employer-sponsored health insurance, it was more likely to get universal care run by the government. And as always, the business community does not like to see government interfering in the private sector, purely on philosophical grounds. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they bought into that system. But, you know, starting in the 1970s, the, a couple of things happened. Medical care gets much more expensive than it's ever been. And you see American manufacturers in particular, but American businesses in general, suddenly in this huge squeeze to cut their cost because there's all this competition from abroad and there's a lot of competition even within the United States from non-unionized companies where they don't pay their employees as well and they don't give their employees the same benefits. So if you think about it, up until the 1970s, the prototype corporation, let's say, was one of the automakers near where I live in Michigan, mm-hmm. you know, where all the incentives were there to give very generous health insurance to your employees. Well, after the 1970s, the incentives reverse and you actually now have an advantage if you don't give uh, generous benefits. You think the prototype today is really more like a company like Walmart, which in fact does offer, uh, does does does, in effect, have an advantage over its rivals because it doesn't pay such good health insurance. And you guys know that because you're in California and the grocery strike a couple of years ago. That was all about that, and that's what that's what sparked the whole thing. Yeah, that's that grocery strike did a number of things that completely uh, made made uh, a mockery of the unions at that point in time, and that was one of them. I don't I don't really know what service what uh, purpose the unions are, are doing for the grocery chains right now. But but that's another story. Yeah. Now, the, the U.S. healthcare system in general, though, is uh, I was just reading in the news that uh, there was a, a study done just uh, recently where it's among the, it ranks last among major rich countries for quality, access, and efficiency. So we, we're getting universal health care for a system that doesn't work to start off with, is is that is that the proposal? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of strange, isn't it? You would think, yeah. given that we spend way more than every other country, we would get something more for that money. Well, more per capita, right, than any, any other? Yes, yes, we pay more per capita. You know, I mean, you know, per person, we spend far more than any More other. as a percentage of gross... Or you know, as a, you know, measured as a gross, you know, uh, yeah. measured as a percentage of our income. Yeah. So you would think we would get something for that money, but then you would be wrong. Um, <laughs> you know that I don't know some of that. That last study, I mean, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say we're last in the world in all, all right. these categories. I mean, you know, you can you can pretty much pick out category. You know, it depends on what category you want to pick out. Who's good and who's bad. What yeah. I think you can say without, again, you can say and you'll be on totally firm ground if you say this is that we are certainly no better than the rest of the world overall. And on a lot of measures, we do seem to be worse. Um, well, infant mortality is one, one measure, and we're certainly not among the, the, the best nations in the world. Oh, no, clearly, clearly, yes. No, that, that's right. I mean, we don't have the best infant mortality. We're actually very low on infant mortality. In the, we're, we're bad at infant mortality. Is, we're bad at longevity. And, but we're also, you know, even you can even break it down more and say, you know, things like, you know, we're not particularly good at, with transplants. You know, we, we don't do very well relative to the world of transplants well, in other had, countries. We've had that issue here in California. In fact, here at UCI, I probably shouldn't bring this up, but they've had some real issues with with transplants and uh, USC. I know we had a number of th- But there was one thing I w- I'd want to get to, and that is that there's a distinction here that needs to be made, and that is if you have the Cadillac, if you will, the Escalade version of healthcare insurance, the United States is among the best countries in the world if you have money to buy into a, a premium uh, insurer. Is that is that a fair statement? Well, I'm not so sure. I mean, your, your your coverage will be good. I mean, you know, obviously, if you have good health insurance coverage, then you're you're financially protected. 
Um, but it's not necessarily true that, you know, and this is the myth, right, is that basically the best healthcare in America is better than anywhere in yeah. the world. I, I, I don't see the evidence for that. Okay. So in some areas, we're the best in the world. I mean, there are some things we're very good at in this country, and, and you know, and you would want to keep that if you change to a universal healthcare system. But there are some areas we're just not that good at. Um, and again, it really depends on what what uh, what particular area of healthcare you're talking about? What kind of procedures? What kind of medicine? And, and you know, and, and more important, I think the overall lesson here is that there's no reason to think that going to universal healthcare needs to in any way diminish the, what is good about American healthcare. There, there's no evidence of that at all. You can have universal healthcare and still have great high quality care. You can have free choice of doctor. You can have you don't have to wait in line. I mean, these are all the things people hear about universal healthcare, and I think spooks them. And it just isn't the case. We're speaking with Jonathan Cohen. The uh, book is Sick. The Untold Story of American Healthcare Crisis and the People Who Pay the Price. I think you just made an important point in my mind, and that is that if we if we were to adopt a universal health care plan, we're not we're not getting our money's worth now. We're certainly going to be doing at least as well as, as we are in terms of health care delivery, and probably better based on the examples uh, and the history of health universal health care plans around the world. Is that Yes, I mean, I think overall, uh, you know, it's certainly true that I think in the long run, universal health care will help you improve quality more than anything else. Uh, and obviously, you're covering everybody, which is something we don't do now. And you're going to, you know, you'll get more for your bang. You'll get more bang for your buck, too. So, I mean, it's win, win, win right. uh, over the long run, yes. So all we need is, really, it sounds like all we need is a political will for this to happen. Don't most, now, I just read uh, a story about polling uh, the American people, and the majority of the American people are in favor of universal health care coverage. Is that? Well, yes, although this is where it starts to get tricky, is okay. that, you know, universal health care is a great slogan. Mm-hmm. Everybody likes the idea of universal health care. Nobody wants to have 45 million people without health insurance. The problem comes is that once you move from, a, from the context of a presidential campaign, let's say, where you're talking about it as a slogan, to actually passing a law where people, you know, people stop thinking in terms of, okay, this is what I think is good for the whole country, and they start to really zero in on Will my insurance be different? Do I like my insurance? Do I want to change it? And this is where I think the problem becomes. I think most Americans, you know, most Americans still have health insurance. They they are under this false impression that if they go to a universal health care system, the quality will, will go down. And they're also under the false impression that they stand more to, to lose than to gain by change. You know, I think people forget the fact that, um, you know, that in fact they could lose their insurance very, very simply. And... And, you know, they forget that, in fact, their insurance is extremely insecure, and they have a false sense of security, and they don't understand just how precarious their situation is. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, in your book, you have a lot of different stories of of people's personal encounters with the healthcare system. And there's a fellow by the name of Gary Rotzler who uh, lived in the Catskill Mountains. Could you talk a little bit about him? Sure, sure. Yeah, no. We uh, we catch up with Gary Rotzler. He's the first chapter in the book. We catch up with him in the in the early 1990s. Um, you know, he thinks he's you know he's living out the American dream. He's married to his high school sweetheart. He uh, they 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 have three young children. They settled into a tiny village in the foothills of the Catskill Mountains of New York called Gilbertsville, which has a population of about 407 people. Huh. And um, it's a very, you know, it's a perfect existence in, in almost every possible way. He's got an engineering job at a defense contractor. And then one day his job, um, he, he gets downsized. He loses his job. He, like so many people, he, he like, you know, he doesn't want to go on public assistance, so he, 
he goes and puts together a series of part-time and temporary jobs and 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 through that he is able to uh you know through that he is able to replace a lot of his income his wife opens a uh, a daycare in their home and that helps replace their income also but uh you know like so many people they can't replace their health insurance because when you don't have a full-time job you can't get health insurance in fact at one point he ends up getting what is it basically his old job back at the defense contractor but now they classify him as temporary so he doesn't get benefits hmm. so they end up doing what so many people do and they ration their own health care they don't get regular routine care they don't they don't see the doctor for the bumps and bruises because yeah. they know, you know, if their daughter breaks her arm or something, they're going to have to go to the emergency room and pay $1,500 for it. So they save their money. They don't get these things checked out. And this actually turns out to be very tragic uh, because eventually Gary's wife, Betsy, she starts feeling fatigue and backache, and she lets it go, and she lets it go, and she lets it go. And eventually it turns out uh, to be uh, breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Now, had she gotten the treatment earlier, you know, would she have survived? It's hard to say. Would she have lived longer and less pain? Probably. And, in fact, she, she does end up passing away. And the family, meanwhile, after this is all done and their lives have been just torn upside down, you know, you have these three young children, they've lost their mother uh, very suddenly. Um, on top of everything, they have these huge debts, and they end up having to declare bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. You know, and that is, you know, again, statistically, we know this is common. We know that people um, without health insurance don't get identified. If they have cancer, they tend to get identified at a later stage because they don't get the screenings but that the, other Americans do. But then you get the, and then you get the other side of it, which is people just say, "I can't, I can't, I can't afford any the minimal amount of health care," so they don't. So they end up at emergency rooms, and this is a this is a tremendous uh, cost. To the healthcare system, isn't it? Where well, people it is. Showing, yeah. You know, people when they, when they don't get checkups, you know, what ends up happening is problems fester, and something that could have been dealt with in a routine way as an ongoing medical expense uh, becomes a uh, catastrophic medical expense. So, you know, it's a lot cheaper in the long run to pay to have a diabetic get regular exams than to not pay for that diabetic to get regular exams, not monitor that person's drug uh, blood sugar level, and then have them show up at the emergency room a year later because they have some catastrophic problem that's going to require them to be hospitalized for a week. Trust me, I mean, you'd actually rather pay a little extra on the front end. I mean, it's worth it. You'd actually rather, you'd rather pay a little too much to make sure that person gets the checkups and takes their their blood medication level, uh, blood level medication, rather than wait and then have to pay for that emergency room visit and the hospitalization that's going to result, you know, a year down the road. We're speaking with Jonathan Cohn. The book is "Sick: uh, The Untold Story of American Healthcare Crisis and the People Who Pay the Price." And that's what I want to ask. Go ahead. We're paying the price. We are paying you the price. Well, we all pay the price in a diminished healthcare system, right? We do. Because, because, and we're paying the and also we're paying a tremendous amount of money to companies and let's get into sort of the economics of all of this and which is these are among the most profitable companies in America aren't they some of the healthcare some, providers some of them are you know particularly you look at something like the pharmaceutical industry right. they're they're, right. they're making a lot of money and um you know it's you know look i have no beef with companies trying to make money you know that's what companies exist for uh, if, if, if making money serves the public interest, you know, if competition brings us all a better product, then I'm all for it. Um, and I don't care who makes money on it. The problem is it doesn't. I mean, that's that's the that's the yeah. issue here. You know, having insurance companies compete with each other does not it does not it certainly doesn't make insurance uh, better quality. It doesn't lead to better quality medical care, and it still leaves millions and millions of medical uh, millions of Americans without access to care. Um, you know, during the 1990s, the great promise that 
that opponents of universal health care always told us was that, don't worry, private insurance can, can, can be innovative and it'll give us higher quality, and at the end of the day, we'll all be better off. Well, we had a kind of a running experiment in that for the last 10 years, and it just didn't happen. And the reason is, frankly, that insurance companies know the easiest way to make money is not to provide good health care. It's to tinker with who you insure. Right. And, and, and figure out ways to avoid really sick people, or at least charge them a lot more money. Um, and that's where they compete. That's where the energy goes in sort of playing with the risk groups, figuring out how to how to capture the best customers. And 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 that gets a lot more attention, frankly, than you know doing preventative care and such. And you know, and and again, in fairness to the insurance companies, I don't entirely blame them. Because if you are an insurance company and you try to do the right thing, what I would consider the, or the good thing, you know, you're going to get creamed in competition because your competitors won't do it and they'll charge lower prices and they'll attract more customers. Well, is there a health care system anywhere in the world that you'd, you'd recommend for our country? Or is it somewhere close that we could start with? Well, you know, there are a bunch, actually. I mean, you know, I actually talk a lot in my book about the French healthcare system. Now, that strikes people as strange, and I'm not sure I actually would advise any politician to get up and start, you know, singing the French national anthem. But if you ask, the funny thing is, French consumers turn out to have very similar attitudes about medical care as American consumers do. Um, they like convenience. They want the best medical care in the world. Um, so they have created a system that provides you know, what is as quality as good as any other country, as far as I can tell, you know, and better in some ways than ours, worse in some ways. I mean, everyone's good and bad at some things. Um, it's extremely convenient. You can choose any doctor. They do not have chronic waiting lines like you do see in some other countries. Um, and yet they cover everybody and they spend less than we do. It actually works a lot like the Medicare system, where basically the government provides everyone basic insurance and you can buy supplemental insurance on top of it. And I, you know, if you want to talk about a country where they do it in a way that Americans would be happy, I say, well, you know, you know look at what they do in France. Well, and that you just you touched on something. We do have, in a sense, we do have universal health care. We have some form of it, which is VA benefits and Medicare. I, what, what, what's the problem with, with a United States senator standing up and saying, I want to extend Medicare to everybody? What, 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 why is that such an implausible idea? Well, it's not that implausible. In fact, we do have senators and congressmen standing up and saying that. Uh, I'm waiting for a presidential candidate to stand up and say that. Um, you know, Dennis Kucinich has sort of campaigned on that for a while, but he's not obviously you know, the most serious of contenders out there. Um, there's various reasons why people resist. I mean, there are some sound reasons. Um, I think there are people who worry about quality of medicine who fear that, you know, Medicare is not the greatest at providing quality care either. I don't think it's any worse than private insurance, but it's not particularly better either. And uh, there's a lot of people who worry about entrenching a system that encourages what are frankly some bad spending habits in America, you know, sort of encouraging a lot of highly expensive specialized types of care, a lot of over-treatment on the back end and under-emphasizing preventative care. So some people worry about that. Uh, and some people, they just figure that, you know, it's too much government. It's too big a fight to try to muscle out the insurance industry from at least, you know, primary insurance. Um, doctors may or may not like it, you know, and so, you know. Well, but, yeah, but, okay, I mean, the things you mentioned can be tinkered with, if you will. Their adjustments can be made, but if the if if the, the system that we already know and we're comfortable with, certainly my parents and millions of other Americans are comfortable with and get a level of care. And, and I like what you're saying about the supplemental idea, the supplemental insurance. It, uh, it just seems like we, we just, we, we are, we, our thoughts, our, our mindset is of a certain type of thinking. And, and we just don't have this, we, we can't make this leap. It's, I don't know. And I, and it comes from leadership. It has to come from our leadership. 
Well, I, I agree. Th- I agree. I mean, I, you know, I was sort of, you know, you, I was trying yeah. to give the case against. Yeah. Uh, oh, I understand. I'll, I'll mention right here. I don't actually agree with the case. Yeah. Of it. I'm, I'm with you on this one. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it does. It is convenient. I do think Americans can identify with it. You know, you have to figure out. You know, there's a policy question of how you get from here to there, but there are good plans out there that have thought this through and say, okay, this is how you do it, and you create an integrated system where you move toward a medi- move towards a Medicare for all model. You know, while still making some of the fixes along the way to take care of those those tinkerings we're talking about. Yeah. And I think it's a very compelling message. Yeah, I do, too. Uh, you're, of course, anyone making this argument is up against uh, big pharma and big and, and medical, these huge medical companies, and it's a tough fight. But I've, the, I have one more question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, have you spoken with any presidential candidates, or have you had any interest from any of their campaigns about what you're saying in this book? Well, you know, I've certainly interviewed the campaigns about what they're doing. Uh, uh-huh. You know, when Senator John Edwards put his plan out a few months ago. I interviewed him. And, um, you know, his plan is, it, it's a, he's the first out of the blocks with a serious, you know, among the presidential contenders. Mm-hmm. He's really the first out of the blocks with a serious plan. It's a good plan. Um, I don't, you know, I would, is it perfect? No. Is it exactly what I would draw up if I were running for president? Well, probably not. Is it very good and does it have a lot to recommend it? Absolutely. Um, and I'm impressed how he's really taken this issue on as his own. I mean, he's really adopted this issue. This is something that means a lot to him. Um, I think we'll be hearing a lot more from the other presidential candidates. You know, it's early still. I will be surprised if we don't get something from Senator Barack Obama, and I'll be surprised if we don't get at least a little more detail from Senator Hillary Clinton. And who knows, you know, Governor Mitt Romney, former governor of Massachusetts, you know, he did sign a universal health care bill yeah. before leaving office. It's, it's, they're having some trouble implementing it now, but... You know, it's in broad shape. The details are, are kind of may not be the greatest, at least as they were passed. But the idea of it is not so different than really what Edwards has proposed and what Schwarzenegger is talking about in California. So, just gonna you know, we may get some Republican love for this, too. Yeah, I was just going to say California's moving in the right, appears to be moving in the right direction. Well, um, thank you very much, uh, Jonathan Cohn. The book is uh, Sick, uh, The Untold Story of America's Healthcare Crisis and the People Who Pay the Price. Are you going to be... Uh, uh, traveling around the country at all? And, uh... I have been, and I, I've made a couple trips to California, and I'm hoping to come back in the fall, if not sooner. I seem to get there a lot. and okay. uh, So, uh, you know, uh, you can check my website, www.sickthebook.com. I keep a kind of running schedule there. Very good. Well, thank you for, for being here on Weekly Signals. We appreciate it. Thank, thank you for having me. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals. Weekly Signals.